when I preached on baptism, uh, I focused on baptism as a symbol of our union with Christ. And I preached in part uh, from Romans chapter 6 after considering the command to baptize in Matthew 28. In Romans 6, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When you read all of Paul's letters, central to his idea, central to his understanding of the Christian life, is this idea of our being joined with Christ. And that idea of our being joined with Christ is central to our text in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. The sermon will be relatively brief, but we'll be reminded of who we really are and what is ultimately true. Because I believe that when we know who we are, when we know what is true, we learn how to live. When we know who we are, when we know what is true, we begin to learn how to live because the compass of our heart is calibrated to true north, right? Every day our hearts are living in one direction or of another, being pulled by the things we want out of life. And when we're reminded of what is true, what is ultimately true, not just what is urgently important, but what is ultimately true and most important, our hearts are recalibrated to true north, to kingdom come. I plead with you this morning to be open to the Spirit's correction. The seemingly urgent things of life can usurp the ultimate things of life. Let me say that again. The seemingly urgent things of life can usurp the ultimate things of life. There are plenty of people vying for your attention every second of every day to tell you what's most urgent. Some of it is, some of it's not. But this morning we center our hearts, our minds, and our bodies on what is ultimate. I pray this morning that you are reminded of who you are in Christ and equipped to follow him with greater focus. The title of this morning's sermon, because I was exhausted for some of it, is simply focus. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, for Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, this phrase is incredible, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. I want to organize the content of these four verses in, just in two basic categories this morning. So if you're taking notes, category one is positional realities. Positional realities. And category two is, is commands, commands, positional realities and, and commands. When I say positional reality, this is simply what I mean. Uh, rightly understanding where we are with God. Rightly understanding where we are with God, our position to God. That is what is most important, what is most real, what's most significant. These are the things that define you. These are the things that are ultimate because these are the things that are eternal. And so there are four statements that stick out from these four verses that help us think about our positional realities. Think about what is true about us, and what is most true about us is what is true in relation to that which is ultimate, timeless, the essence of truth himself. 
So what is most true about us, perhaps from these four verses, are these four things. You have been raised with Christ. You have died with Christ. Your life is hidden in Christ. And you will appear with Christ in glory. Let me say those four positional realities again. You have been raised with Christ. You have died with Christ. Your life is hidden in Christ. And you will appear with Christ in glory. In these four statements coming from these four verses, here we have a picture of Christ's supremacy over our past, over our present, and over our future. We have a picture of a God who has redeemed our past, He has secured our future, and He gives meaning to our present. Now, these four positional realities only make sense with sort of a brief step back and understanding of sort of the whole narrative of the Bible. Scriptures teach that from birth we are in Adam. Adam and Eve are federal heads, right? The first man and first woman created. And being in Adam, we inherit the curse of sin. We inherit a fallen nature. From birth, we are sinful. We are what you could call radically corrupted, meaning we're made perfectly in God's image. But there's misfirings all over our hearts and minds. We sin. We all sin. We turn from God. We all turn from God. We run from God, and we rebel against God, each in our own way. Some of you have rebelled against God by doing drugs, by sleeping with whoever you want to sleep with, by this sort of worldly pleasures and pursuits. Others of you have rebelled against God with religion. You try to show God how good you can be. You try to show God how clean you can make your life. But from birth, we are sinful, and we've turned from God, we've run from God, and somehow we've rebelled from God, each in our own way. From birth, then, we are associated with Adam in ways that we may not be able to vocalize, but are primordially and instinctively true. We are heirs of a fallen nature. We are heirs of sin. And the Scriptures teach that the Christian life begins with a new birth, a second birth, where our fate is no longer tied to a first Adam, but our fate is now tied to a second Adam. So how do we receive this second birth? Well, the answer is simple, by trusting the second Adam, by associating not with rebellion in the first Adam, but by associating with grace In the second Adam, how do you receive this birth? By trusting Jesus. As Paul will say in multiple times, we'll call him the second Adam or the last Adam. The man who was perfect, the man who did not rebel from God. And this second birth is a gift brought to life in us by the Holy Spirit when we respond in repentance and faith to the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news of Jesus coming to meet our deepest need by bearing our sin and restoring God's plan for the whole wide world by inaugurating God's kingdom. 
So when we respond to that news that Jesus has come to bear our sin, that Jesus has come to make all things right, that Jesus has come to inaugurate God's kingdom, when we hear that news, when we believe that news, and when we trust that news, like if you came in the room right now, there's no fire, but if you yelled fire and no one left, it's because they didn't believe there was a fire. If they instinctively believed there was a fire, they would leave the the auditorium. But we didn't believe that. So real believing is sort of verified by our actions. So when we hear the news of who Jesus is, if we believe that news and respond in faith and repentance, the repentance verifies that we believe that news. Because the news is that salvation is found in Christ alone. Salvation is found in Jesus. Stop living your way and start living his. Then repentance demonstrates we believe that's true. Because all repentance is is saying, I'm no longer going to live my way. I'm going to live God's way. It's a turning. People always talk about how it literally means you change your mind about sin. It's no longer something I look for. It's something I run from. It's no longer something I take pleasure in. It's something I know that it robs me of my ultimate pleasure in God. I change my mind about my sin. I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to live like that anymore. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to live for God now. That demonstrates the saving faith in our lives. And when we respond to the news of Jesus that way, we are saved. We're born again. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And I believe somebody here needs to hear that in such simple terms this morning. Paul teaches that Christ's death was our death. He teaches that Christ on the cross has borne the penalty for our sin. He has tasted death that we may never taste death. And just as his death was our death, his victory over death was our victory over death. Because of his resurrection from the dead, we have everlasting hope that we too will be resurrected from the dead. As Paul will say in other words, in other places, the life I live now in the flesh, I live for him who saved me and him who shed his own blood for me. This is the perspective we must not lose. This is the perspective that Paul is incorporating at a crucial moment in his letter to the Colossians as he's bridging the gap from doctrinal foundations and introduction to the false teaching and moving towards Christian ethics and way of life. He grounds them in the gospel message. He grounds them in the supremacy and centrality of Christ. Here is the perspective we must not lose. We have died in Christ. We live in Christ, and we will overcome in Christ. Christ is all, and all is Christ. Christ, who is your life, as the text says. All we have and all we are is for Christ, and it's from this foundation that we live lives that can be called Christian. From this foundation, we must consider the rest of the letter. From this foundation, we consider two major commands in these four verses as we transition to the second and final part of the sermon, the commands. In light of these positional realities, in light of the truth that I've been raised with Christ, in light of the truth that I've died with Christ, in light of the truth that my life is hidden in Christ, and in light of the truth that I will appear with Christ in glory, two things. Seek the things that are above and set your mind on things that are above. 
But next week, uh, we'll flesh out what this looks like in specific actions. So be here for that. The things that we don't do. The things that we do. But this morning, I want to be a little more foundational than, than that. I want to evaluate where we are. I want to lead you to evaluate where you are in more foundational terms. Seek the things that are above and and set your mind on things that are above. There's a relationship between the things you're seeking and the things your mind is set on. There's a relationship between the things that you're seeking and the things that your mind is is set on. There's really some interplay, right? For instance, you're seeking what your mind is set on. Whatever is is fixating on your mind, that's what you're seeking. That's what you're living towards. But that's also backwards. It's also true if it's backwards. And what, what I mean is, you're setting your mind on things that you're seeking. Right? Your heart wants to feel valued. So you're setting your mind on education. Because if you get that next degree... If you get smart enough, then you're going to feel valued. So there's a sense in which you're, you can make the case that your heart is sort of leading your mind, and you can make the alternate case that your mind is seek, leading your heart, and I think in some ways both may be true. So two questions you should ask yourself, and this is why I ask that you would be open to the Spirit's correction, because I, I want you to really resist vague, ambiguous, spiritual answers that you've been trained to give to dodge accountability what am I seeking, and what is my mindset on? If you're taking notes, I would, I would jot those down. What are you seeking? What am I seeking? And what am I setting my mind on? What am I thinking about on a Thursday evening when I don't have anything else to do? When I'm not, you know, when I'm off the clock, so to speak. When I have time that's mine, where does my mind simply wander? The text says, if you've been raised with Christ, you should seek the things that are above, the things where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You should set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, because you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When I was in India, I thought a lot about India, but I thought a lot about here, you know, I thought a lot about Holly, I thought a lot about resurrection, I thought a lot about my basketball kids, you know, I thought a lot about a lot of things, because that's where my life is, you know? My life is here with you, yahoos, and it's, you know, that's where we live together. This is our life. My life's not there. So my mind is where my life is, and Paul's teaching that simple truth, that your life is in heaven with Christ. So your mind, when you think about life, when you think about home, your mind goes to Christ because that's where I am, that's where I'm from, that's where I'm going back to one day. Because I'm dead to the world, and I'm, my life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is my life, appears, then I'll appear with him in glory. What am I seeking? What am I setting my mind on? The first diagnostic question, it's not the most maybe important question, but it leads to the most important questions, is where is my mind? And you can't answer that ethereally. You can't answer that ambiguously. I guess you could, but it wouldn't do us any good. So let's say there are like 10,000 minutes in a week. I'm terrible at math, so whatever, 24 hours in a day, I think. Um, 
60 hours in a, 60 minutes in an hour, so you multiply it out, thousands of, of, of minutes. How many of those, on average, are spent focused on eternal spiritual things? Does that question alone tell us about our spiritual health? No, but it makes it a little more concrete. It lets me begin to wonder, okay, how much time am I thinking about the things of God? How much time am I thinking about the spiritual life? When we think about the things that are eternal, it means a lot of things, but let's bring it down to the bare minimum this morning, God himself. How much am I thinking about God in a week? Is it like the 35, well, not 35 minutes of the sermon, because that's, uh, me pay attention the whole time, which is tough. Let's say, you know, 18 minutes of a sermon throughout the week. Is that, is that the fullness of the time you spent thinking about God? And then you can do the math for you, you know, and you can think about how your, your percentages may be. But I want you to ask, what am I thinking about when I don't have to think about something else? How much time am I spending just thinking about God? Not about church stuff, which is important in its place. Remember, we're getting foundational this morning. But how much time am I spent thinking about God, fixing my mind on God, and praying to God? I think we should begin to answer those questions for ourselves. And, and one of the reasons I think that is because ambiguity is one of the greatest threats to our spiritual development. I don't really know what I'm seeking in life. I don't know. I just, I go to work, I go home, I go to church a couple times a month. Um, I don't really pay attention. I, I just turn on the TV. You know, I, I, don't. I would argue that ambiguity comes from apathy. The lack of clarity comes from a lack of caring, because we'll begin to be clear on the things we care most about. Are you setting your mind on Christ leads us to a deeper question, am I seeking Christ? Which leads me to a, an immediately present question, am I following Christ? Can I say Christ who is my life, or does that just feel disjointed and off and a little untrue? Are you following Christ? Are you seeking Christ? We'll flesh out a lot more in the coming weeks. But I'm being intentionally broad this morning. Or are you just, you know, are you just kind of like, man, you know, I'll show up at church and no one asks me too many questions, but it, it would be hard for me this morning to say I'm, I'm seeking Christ and I'm setting my mind on godly things and I'm setting my mind on God. And that's where I'm asking God to get us this morning. I'm asking God for renewed focus. I'm asking God that he would in us help us to, to reject ambiguity and help us to reject apathy and let us to embrace focus and let us to embrace devotion. Let us set our minds on Christ and let us seek Christ. This text was, was next in our preaching series. And it's, it's so interesting that it combines with coming home from the mission field, right? Because when you're on the mission field, and I'm using that term to talk about, you can use that term in a lot of ways. I'm using it this morning to talk about reaching unreached and unengaged people groups. When you're on the field so many random controversies and random questions, they're just not very relevant. Like, 
Because our whole purpose is to make the gospel clear. Make God known. Make disciples of people. And when we think about theology, it's not that it's unimportant. It's that it's important in embodied ways. Meaning theology helps us fix our minds on God and we learn how to live God's way. So it's not that theological and spiritual and difficult issues are insignificant. It's that they're not just relevant out there, but they're relevant in here. They're relevant for the people of God to live out the mission of God. They're relevant for us to reach our neighbors and the nations with the gospel. When you're on the mission field, you have to be marked by focus. You have to be marked by devotion, or you will die of depression, anxiety, or something else very, very quickly. And I think that's one of the big disconnects, that we see there are certain people that we believe God's called to focus on him in profound ways, and that everyone else is just sort of doing, like following or cheering for those people. But that's not biblical theology. Biblical theology is that the mission of God goes forth on the wings of the people of God, and that where God does most of his work is through everyday normal people who are sold out to him, who are focused on him who don't come to church and hope other people pray, who don't come to church and hope other people pay attention, who don't come to church and look around and see who else is there, but who come to church looking to meet with the living God. With people whose prayers are for God. If God answered all my prayers today, what would my life look like? If God, if every person I shared the gospel with responded in faith, how many people would be Christians today? Am I focused on these things that matter most? Or am I just going off into all of these different things? I love what Paul says to Timothy in the second epistle to him about focus and devotion. He's contrasting two really groups of people. Group one is people, he says, they're always pondering and never arriving. They're always asking these big philosophical questions, and they're always thinking about how they should be, but they don't ever, like, live different. They just think, and they ponder. And the text says they wander off into speculation and endless myths. He says, don't be like them. And he uses three metaphors for Christian service and Christian life. He says, be like this. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. He said, an athlete isn't crowned unless he competes by the rules. And the hardworking farmer is the one who should have first share of his crops. What's the tie that binds those together? The focused soldier, the disciplined athlete, and the hardworking farmer. It's that each of them knows their role, they know their purpose, and they fulfill it well. The soldier's aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The athlete doesn't win unless he plays by the rules, meaning the athlete doesn't win unless he lives life God's way. Christian service, like the soldier, is aimed to please God. Christian service, like the athlete, is lived by the rules, meaning it's lived God's way and not our way. And the reward is for the one who stays on the work. The hardworking farmer ought to have the first share of the crops. Don't be like the people who wander off into endless speculation and end up in myths. 
they're seeking the wrong things. Their minds are set on the wrong things. Seek Christ. Keep your mind set on Christ. A worship team, if, if you want to come on up as we wind our way to the end of the service or just the pianist in it. Here's my message for us from this text on the backs of our experience in, in India. First church, don't forget who you are. Don't forget what's ultimately true about you. You've died with Christ. Your life is hidden in Christ. Your reward is Christ. Christ is our life. Christ is who we're all about. Christ is who this thing's for. And one day all the earth will shout his praise. This is where this whole thing's going, to the worship of Christ. First thing, church, don't forget who you are. We are Christ's people. Christ is our life. We are his body and his life is lived through us. And we were made to know him and make him known. Let me repeat that. We were made to know Christ. And we were made to make Christ known. My takeaway from the text, from the trip, and just what God has been laying on my heart as I've prayed for you and as I've thought about you. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? And I think that's, that's sometimes untrue, but many times it's true. And my prayer for you guys, my prayer for me, my prayer for us, as I'm thinking about 2020 and, and getting things organized for there, this great moment in our church's life where we've kind of settled, we're able to move forward, my prayer for us is that we would not settle for lesser pursuits. That we wouldn't become a people who just know how to do church better and better and better and the result of that is marketing's better and people who come better and people who stick are more and things like that. But ultimately, what I pray is true is that we are a people who say Christ is our life. I set my mind on Christ. I seek Christ. I want to know Christ. And it's from that longing, it's from that posture that we begin to live a different way. My prayer for us is that we would be laser focused on the essentials. Some of you may be here and you're asking really foundational and really basic questions. Who am I? And what is life for? That answer begins to make sense when we look to Jesus. Jesus shows us who we are. The cross shows us two things that are equally true about ourselves. We're more guilty of sin than we ever imagined. And that our sin is more serious than we ever thought. But we're more loved than we ever dared believe that there is one who knows us more than we know ourselves. There is one who cares about us when we didn't care about him. And he pursued us and he died in our place that we might know him, that our deepest needs may be met and that we can be a part 
of the restored creation. That we would no longer be in the last Adam, but we would be in the second Adam. That we would no longer be born simply of sin, but that we would be born again by grace. And that the pursuit of our life wouldn't be to be famous, be known, where the pursuit of our lives would be to know Christ, to live in to what is ultimately true. Who am I? What is life for? Look to Jesus. Together, let's learn. Over the course of weeks, months, and years, in victory and in defeat, in seasons of growth and seasons of struggle, in seasons of joy and seasons of pain, in seasons of sickness and in health, this is where we learn to live God's way. So this morning, I hope our hearts are aimed towards kingdom come. I hope our hearts are aimed towards true north. I hope our hearts are aimed towards where our life is, and our life is where Christ is. So I hope our hearts are aimed to Jesus this morning. And we have a lot of questions and a lot of things to figure out, but that's the way we're living. That's the way we're seeking, and that's where we're putting our minds. And we're asking God, God, I don't care enough about the things of you. Help me do that, God. I don't, I don't wake up with a hunger to be in your word. I want that. One of the best prayers we can pray is, Lord, I don't have enough faith. Give me faith. Or I don't have the desire enough to read. Give me the desire to read. I don't have the desire to love. Give me that desire. And I be, believe that that is the beginning of spiritual growth. I'm going to pray for us. And after I do, I'm going to come down to serve the Lord's table. The scriptures are clear that when we take of the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. We are appropriating that death for us. We're saying, I need that for me. That Christ's death is my death. And there's a visible picture of us taking those elements that represent Christ's blood and body and putting them in our body, right? There's this, I am sustained, not just by food and drink out there, but I am sustained by the word of God. And that all of me is sustained by Jesus. And I'm taking this as a symbol of how desperately I need Jesus. So when you come to the table today, I always try to help us think through where our minds. When you come to the table today, this is our proclamation. I need Jesus. Let us set our minds on him. Let us seek him. And let's remember that we are his. This table then would not be for you if you don't believe the gospel. If you've not turned to follow Jesus. You're invited to come and just sort of put your hands up like this or like this or whatever. I'd love to pray over you. But if that makes you uncomfortable, just stay, stay in your seat and know that we're so thrilled that you're here to hear this message. So let's pray, and then I'll come down after a couple moments of reflection and invite you to the Lord's table. Father, um, I, there are so many things vying for our attention individually as as single people here, as families here, as wherever we may be. There's so many things that are urgent 
and there are so many things that seem urgent and it's so easy for us to just to forget what is ultimate to forget what is true and so this morning God I pray that you'll ground us in Christ I pray that you'll take these four realities that you've, we've been raised with Christ we've died with Christ our lives are hidden in Christ and we will appear with Christ I pray that those will be, be drilled deep into our hearts and I pray that in light of those realities we would seek you we would set our minds on you that we would live where our life is that we will be a people who are only of any earthly good because we are so heavenly minded Christ forgive us for our pursuit of lesser things forgive us for our focus being off and help us fix our hearts fix our eyes and fix our minds on you hear our confessions as we come to your table in a moment that we need you. Oh, we need you, God. Every hour we need you, Lord. Give us the aroma of heaven in a country of death. In the name of Christ, the risen Lord, my only hope, we pray.